the most common context where a laser eye injury occurred was during laser hair removal of the face. And so these are pigment targeting wavelengths. And perhaps this is a procedure that is often handed off to newer personnel. And so that kind of brings up the idea that we need to make sure that our extenders and our staff understand the importance of eye protection. That's Dr. Vincent Richet. He's a medical and cosmetic dermatologist at Pacific Derm in Vancouver, and he's a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia. Once again, he's our guest today on JCMS Author Interviews. Uh, I think you're in for a real treat. I'm your host, uh, Kirk Barber, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, and I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, Dr. Richet and I will discuss his article in our September-October issue of JCMS that's titled Preventing Eye Injuries from Light and Laser-Based Dermalogic Procedures, a Practical Review. And just a reminder before we get started, this article is open access, so you can uh, share it with your friends. Well, Vincent, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again for another podcast on JCMS Author Interviews. What inspired you to look at laser and laser light injuries? Thanks for the invitation again. Um, truly, this is a bit of a follow-up paper or follow-up exercise after a, a paper that was published with a uh, now dermatologist in northern BC here, Dr. Lisa Flagel. We took the time to review the literature to see what type of what types of eye injuries have been published in the scientific literature and at what context do they occur. Is it laser hair removal? Is it IPLs? Is it pigment laser? Is it resurfacing? Uh, who gets the injury, right? Is it the patient? Is it the operator? Uh, what was the context? Are the proper goggles worn, etc.? And truly, it was a bit of a, um, uh, a, a devastating <laughs> review, if you will, because, you know, of the 60 cases of direct uh, uh, ocular injury, about 75% of them were fully avoidable by using proper eye protection. And so what that's really telling us is that there's a little bit of a, of a gap in terms of what's happening in offices with light and laser-based devices, because truly these are, you know, are potentially vision-threatening events uh, that yeah. we should be avoiding. And so the idea behind this paper was more so to give a practical guide, not so much a checklist, but using the uh, scientific basis around these devices to understand how eye injuries can occur and then setting up some strategies to prevent them. So if our listeners want to read that article, it's in Dermatologic Surgery? Correct. And so the article looking at the review is called, it's called Review of Eye Injuries Associated with Dermatologic Laser Treatment. And it was published in Dermatologic Surgery in 2022. Okay, well, let's um, see if we can keep our listeners from joining you through your next revision of your paper. So, so <laughs> what's the how-to here? I mean, I read through the article and I thought, like, I don't do laser myself. And I read through the article and thought, whoa, separate room, blinds, uh, fit the goggles, corneal shields. It's, it sounded like a great deal. I thought you just bought the machine, put it in the corner and, uh, and turned it on and, and did the wand thing. So help, <laughs> me, help me to better understand what I need to do to set up and protect myself and my patient from uh, injury. Yeah, exactly. And uh, 
the the reality is that we need to have a series of fail safes, and there's multiple areas between you know the discussion with the patient, uh, the patient showing up, how they're set, how the room is set up, which goggles we choose, how we protect their eyes. Uh, like there could be multiple points of failure there. You know, I think, and we we try to take them almost in a chronological order in the encounter with the patient. And the first one is all about uh, patient screening and informed consent. And you know, basically, uh, you know, we should be discussing with our patients that uh, you know, if a laser is shot in the eye, there's potential consequences for that, and then the mitigating action for that is for them to keep their eye protection on during the procedure unless otherwise indicated. It it seems like such a straightforward thing to think about, but uh, you know, this when we're doing elective procedures, we're meant to talk about the common things that we expect to happen and the rare catastrophic or critical things. And I think that uh, that is one of those things. And since we have such an effective way of mitigating the damage that requires on some degree of compliance, uh, it's worth doing. Okay, so where does where do I go to find out to find that uh, consent form that has all those details? Are there are there published kind of consent forms uh, for these procedures, so I don't have to make up my own. Most offices, I believe, make up their own. We certainly do. And uh, uh, occasionally there is a model uh, consent form that would come with the device, right, uh, to try and look at some things. But of course, uh, uh, you know, consent forms carry a bit of uh, legalese and anti-litigation type of language. And so oftentimes uh, that's something that might, uh, uh, you know, be double-checked or verify with your lawyer if this is something that you do routinely. Okay, so so consider the manufacturers, but modify it to your jurisdiction, if you will. So no, so no real shortcuts there, okay? So patient comes in, signs a consent form, you tell them that they could possibly be blinded by your procedure and um, you hope that uh, that they continue to want to have the procedure I suspect ever had anyone turn around and leave well I think it this is kind of like discussing isotretinoin with our patients right if you tell them this is dangerous for your liver and horrible which we know there's a million ways to prevent and mitigate that then uh, um, there's a way to discuss it right and so in the office I might say uh, um, you know, it's very important for us to protect the eyes during a laser procedure. If a laser light is shone at the eye, it could damage it seriously. Uh, thankfully, we have uh, very effective uh, goggles. Your responsibility will be to make sure to keep them on during the procedure and not take okay. them off, right? And, and do not take them off. Do not Correct. take them off. Okay. All right. So, so when, when you're when you're operating outside of the eye, do you ever? I don't, I'm tape them on, or do you ever affix them so that people cannot move them? Uh, and so I would say that mo- it would be a really unusual scenario for people to spontaneously want to remove these in the middle of the procedure. Of course, with pediatric patients, it's a little bit more difficult. Sure. And uh, But I think in the uh, consultation, we're also evaluating how cooperative the patient can yeah. be with an elective procedure like that. Yeah, I know if they'll panic. I mean, the, the idea, I guess, is the, the real risk is that someone panics and decides in the middle of your procedure that they want to leave the room. So Yeah, exactly. Okay. Interestingly, um, because I do get referrals from Children's Hospital to treat, whether it's telangiectasia or certain types of birthmarks, 
skinned, I find that actually shielding the eyes is one of the scarier things for children. The pain is actually not so bad. They're usually pretty tough. Um, and so in the consult room, while I'm chatting with them, I'll actually get one of my staff to bring the blackout goggles. And we're chatting, etc. They're trying them on. So this is not uh, something that's going to be necessarily new at the day of their procedure. And so um, like a fun, uh, a bit of a fun yeah. pearl here, because sometimes the eye protection is the scariest thing, well, sure. uh, especially sure. for our pediatric patients. Well, they want to leave. Mm-hmm. They want to leave and they want to. It's, it's like when you examine uh, kids, you, you do it a garment at a time because yeah, yeah, once you exactly. undress them, undress them, they have the sense that they can't leave the room. Versus if they still have their pants on or their shirts on, they can they, they away they go. So the guy goggle must be the frightening bit too. That's a good piece of advice. So play with it ahead of time during the consultation, or or maybe even have the parents buy a pair, have them at home. It, and it can um, it kind of the, the removes the surprise and the disarms that aspect of it. So very interesting. Okay, so you so consent forms are appropriate. Knowing instructing the patient that a direct. A command from you to remove your glasses is the only way that they'll ever take them off from the mm. time they put them on. Um, so types of eyewear. Do you have a different type of eyewear for the operator versus the patient? Yeah, and so that's uh, a big part of the article is the, you know, how to chase to safely choose the eyewear for the operator and then what eyewear eye protection to choose for the patient. And so when we're talking about protection for the operator, the person that's taking, uh, that's using the laser device, well, we want to make sure that they have appropriate goggles that shield for the wavelength of the device that's being used. And so I, um, when I have residents uh, rotate with me, I'll commonly hand them a goggle and they'll, of course, they're trusting me, right? They're putting it on. And I'll ask them, uh, like, well, how do you, you know, there's three lasers in this room. How do you know that I handed you the right one, right? And so, you know, trying to uh, uh, build in that idea that before you don a pair of goggles, you should have a look at the optical density on the goggle itself for which wavelength it protects. And so in, you know, in the article, we go through some uh, interesting detail about the uh, optical density, which is basically a a logarithmic relationship to the inverse of transmittance in such a way that if you have an optical density of two, there's only 0.01 or about 1% of light that's getting through. And most uh, laser protection goggles that come with devices, they'll have an optical density of five, six or above, which means we're only getting 0.00001 uh, of, uh, of that laser wavelength, which, you know, makes the exposure safe to us as operators. Do they ever impair your, impede your vision? Yeah, and that's another consideration is that especially if they're shielding visible light, you might, uh, your vision might be dimmed by donning these goggles. And so when we talk about the clinical environment and the setup of the room, these rooms have to be bright because I'm going to be putting shades, if you will, to protect myself from the laser correctly. And we don't want to be tempted to be putting the the goggle on and off and on and off constantly while the device later the laser is on, right? Laser should be put on standby if you're going to be removing your goggles. And ideally, you have enough lighting in that room that you can see what you're doing. (laughs) Look at your biological endpoint without needing to take uh, unsafe uh, measures to visualize the treatment field. Okay, so you've got different 
goggles for different machines. Uh, I mean, you color code them or somehow you make sure that everybody in the room knows that this is the kind of goggle to wear on that particular patient slash day. Um, you know, that must be a little bit difficult, but not, but to make sure that everybody is, is, is doing that. But I'm sure there are systems that are in place, just like a, like a, like the check, like a checklist that the air, the air plane pilots go through, right? It's, Check, check, check uh, through. Exactly. And so we, um, we even quote, uh, uh, you know, an interesting article about presenting sort of a laser treatment checklist. And so uh, in, in, at that practice, they have it on one of those uh, sort of wipe away boards and you would just check things off with uh, uh, one of those pens to make sure that you have the appropriate, uh, the appropriate goggles on. It's like the Safe Surgery Initiative. Correct. The very best book on checklists is called The Checklist Manifesto. <laughs> and it's by a, a Tool Gawanda. He's a famous author. He's an epidemiologist slash surgeon from John Hopkins who came up with the Safe Surgery Initiative. Uh, World, Health Organization, World Health Organization charged him with creating this to stop surgical injuries. And checklists are critical. And in, in, in your world now in particular, when, when the consequences of making a mistake are so great. For me, the... I basically look at the wavelength information on a goggle any time before I put it on. So my staff is great. They, Of course, they put the right goggle out 99.9% of the time. But, um, you know, I feel like it's, it's my own responsibility uh, before I put it on to have a look at that. Do you check and theirs? Yeah, well, if there's if there's someone else in the room that uh, is present, uh, I I do verify. Uh, you know, I look at I, because it's uh, on the top or on the front. Usually, you can see it just by looking at someone. Okay, okay. Interestingly, it. I think this is a particularly important point when so now devices are smart. They have multiple wavelengths, but so usually goggles can shield against multiple wavelengths. But if you have multiple devices that have their own uh, protective goggle, you might end up being at a point where you have the goggle on that's not meant for the device that you're about to fire. And so uh, rooms that have multiple uh, devices are at a, sort of a higher risk of a bit of uh, an eye protection mix-up. Okay. Yeah, and so we, we actually have color-coded tapes on the sides of the goggles as well as an, an extra reminder. So you can check and, and check each other probably even more importantly. So have someone, so you should, well, if I were in your situation, I would allocate somebody in the room to make sure that everybody had the red goggles on and, mm-hmm, uh, exactly. and, and verbally do it so that you don't have that problem where somebody goes, whoopsie, you know, and uh, has the wrong, wrong goggle on. Yeah, it's like that uh, that OR take five. You know, you're naming the patient and yep. making sure which leg you're uh, you're, you're treating. Yep. You know, and so uh, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Again, the safe surgery initiative, where they where they yeah. make sure they have the right prosthesis, correct for for the right side, and so on and so forth. Right. And now with the eyewear for the patient, it's a bit of a more difficult scenario, right? Because truly, you could do one of three things. You could decide that you give the patient the same protective goggles that you would wear that allows people to see the visual, to, to have some, some awareness of their surroundings, right? You might put an anodized metal uh, blackout goggle, or you might need to place a corneal shield. And so these are, uh, you know, three degree, three very different scenarios, 
In general, I don't think that the protective goggle that we wear as operators is an appropriate treatment for uh, an appropriate protection for the patient anytime that we're treating the face, right? There isn't true wraparound protection with these goggles. A bit of light could be getting at the edge. And so whenever I'm treating the face for a patient, for sure we're using those, what our patients call the, the tanning booth goggles. And so uh, the uh, protective anodized metal goggles that are re really uh, fitted and uh, don't allow light to get in um, at an incident angle, for instance. The very rare occasions where I'll have the uh, patient wear the same goggles that we wear is if we're treating something on an extremity and they, I will instruct them to look at the treatment field directly to make sure that they're fully getting the head-on protection. Really, the main advantage of doing that is when uh, patients are anxious or new to the procedure and to have the whole phenomenon be blacked out is a little bit difficult on them. So it's a bit of... Uh, in general, I use the full blackout goggle, but in very rare scenarios, let's say, you know, a tattoo removal on the wrist and, you know, patient is nervous or curious to see the procedure with us, right? And so uh, we might give them the same goggles that we use at that time. But in, in general, my preference is for patients to have the blackout goggles at all times. How do you clean them? I mean, do you, do you have patients buy individual ones for their, for their procedure? What kind of infection risk do you mitigate and how do you do it? For, for, the, for the laser goggles? Yeah, for the patients. Because, for example, in the, in the PUVA center or the, the phototherapy centers, yeah. um, I have people either bring their own goggles and I really dislike the sharing of goggles. Yeah, because um, in in eye infections, I've seen transmitted amongst patients. I, I feel badly about it and and feel responsible. In fact, thankfully, we don't have as high a throughput as a, a phototherapy center, and so their uh, goggles are essentially rotated and wiped down with alcohol uh, in between each use, and so they're fully uh, cleaned uh, to you know prevent any uh, any type of contact transmission. What do they cost? The blackout goggles, I think, are in the order of uh, $800 to $1,000. They ma they're made out of a special anodized metal that will prevent uh, direct reflection if laser light is shone onto them. And so anodized basically means sort of rough, not an even surface, not a mirror-like surface, so that light would be scattered in multiple directions on them rather than like directly back to the operator, for instance. So I'm not likely to be buying my own. No, I no. wouldn't expect, uh, we wouldn't expect to give, and uh, and if they go missing at the clinic, it's a big deal, you can imagine. <laughs> of course. And yeah. so uh, they, they, they live in a special place, in a special drawer, and are very well babied. Are they sterilizable? Uh, that's a really good question. I would think that they probably are, because they're made out of very similar material to the corneal shields that we use, and we sterilize those between use, right, because they're being put uh, directly on a mucosa. So that'll be worthwhile sorting out um, mm -hmm. to, to, to find out if, when, you start to, when you start your practice, see if whether, whether or not you can sterilize them. I would guess that yes, but I'll have to 100% confirm that. Okay, and then the third, so goggles you can see through, like the patient can kind of see their tattoo procedure, the anodized black metal blackout goggle. And now the third option was a corneal shield. Yes, and so 
Obviously, we, if we are treating something on the upper lid or on the lower lid that's getting close to the lash line, all of a sudden we're getting really close to ocular structures that have hemoglobin, have melanin, uh, and could really, you know, ha accidentally have their chromophores be targeted by laser light. And so when we're treating in and around uh, the eye area, we have to decide, is this close enough to the eye that I need to put a corneal shield uh, on the patient to appropriately protect them. And part of that review article in writing this article is trying to find out, you know, how close is too close? You know, uh, how close do you have to be to the eye to decide, yep, this is a corneal shield thing. And or um, I can actually pull the skin down uh, onto the bone and I'm able to get in there with that blackout goggle uh, uh, still feeling like uh, everything's safe and we're not getting any eye exposure. So do you have rules, rules of thumb that you use? Well, in, in my practice, if a lesion on the lower eyelid is not overlying bone, right? And so that's why I do a lot of palpation with my patients and I see if I can pull it down so that it sits over bone. So if it's really close to the eye on the lower eyelid or essentially anywhere on the upper eyelid, I'm going to talk to the patient that we're going to need to put a, a corneal shield for their procedure to uh, target the lesion uh, at that area. Is it difficult to learn how to do that? I think it's more, you have to psych yourself in, right? And so uh, I was lucky during my fellowship that we would go to the um, OR at Children's Hospital and I would put these into like uh, six-month-old or one-year-old babies, right? So I got, I, I got the sense of doing it. Um, but I, I think this is one of those things where there's more fear than pain, both for the person doing the procedure and for the patient. And so... Um, I go in the article through a bit of detail, but essentially we uh, put an alkane drop in the eye, a little bit of numbing agent, and then I uh, choose the appropriate uh, size of shield according to the eye aperture of the patient. We lubricate it with lube. We put a little bit of saline in there. And then uh, usually what I'll do is that myself and the patient, we will, we will pull the lower lid uh, down, and then I will gently place uh, the uh, contact lens uh, under the lower lid, and then I will uh, lift up the upper lid and rotate it internally a little bit to sort of slide it under there. As you may remember from ophthalmology, that like pressure on the globe is like can uh, create a little bit of a vasovagal response or make people uncomfortable. So I'm very careful that I'm hovering there rather than just pressing down. And when the shield is in its appropriate place, um, p p patients have zero pain. They're just blinking their eyes. It's a bit weird because their eyes are open and they can't see uh, with that eye, but they are very comfortable. And uh, so there is, um, I think we, we have to radiate calm and confidence because um, we, we cannot fight someone actively closing their eye when we're putting in a corneal shield. If they're closing their eye on you, you there's no winning here, right? You're, you're not, you're not going to pry their eye open. And so in the consult, if I know we have to do this, I ask them, have you ever put a contact lens? You know, uh, because uh, some people will just say, like, I don't want anything getting close to my eye or uh, I can't. I've tried to get contact lenses. It's impossible for me to get in there. I'm like, you already get a sense that they might be a bit more combative. 
But this is a part of the where I tell them we're going to breathe in and out. You're going to relax. This is getting very close to you. You just uh, breathe in, right? And and if they, you know, if uh, I'm a bit clumsy and they fight it a little bit, we take another breather. We take it out. We give them a second um, because the, there's basically no prying an eye open to get that in there. We need a degree of cooperation. You're working on the left eye, say, you put the corneal shield in the left eye. What do you do with the right eye? If I'm going to be doing laser very close to the eye in that area, then I'm going to put a corneal shield there too. Uh, if I'm um, other, if I'm not, then we can use, I guess there was a fourth option for the patient instead of the laser goggle. There are, there are laser safe stickers that we can put on patients as well. And so, of course, they're a consumable, they're a throwaway thing, and so we uh, don't necessarily use them all the time. But they uh, are a fourth option for the patient, and in that situation where we have a shield on one side, it, it is reasonably uh, easy to put a sticker on the other one. This sticker, adhesive-backed, I'm assuming, and you, you put it over the entire eye, around the orbital rim, is that where it sticks? Or does it yeah, stick it, on the it, lids? It, it, Yes, it it uh, it is stuck to the close on the lids to the closed eye, basically. To the closed eye, okay. Exactly, and so that uh, that would be uh, uh, the uh, other option there. And so, oftentimes, if we're just putting one shield on one side, we'll do that to the other one. Okay. Now, I'd like to return to that article, your first article, the inspiration for this how-to, and you said that most of the well, seventy-five percent were preventable. When you looked at that prevention, the, the the injuries rather, what's the common one? What, what are the things that you learned from that article that we can pass on? The most common context where a laser eye injury occurred was during laser hair removal of the face. And so these are pigment targeting wavelengths. And perhaps this is a procedure that is often handed off to uh, maybe newer personnel, right? And so that kind of brings up the idea that we need to make sure that our extenders and our staff uh, understand the, the importance of eye protection, right? Because those three quarters of cases that are preventable, what, what that means is that essentially eye protection was removed, right? And that then there's a many questions, many reasons why that might happen. One of them being to accommodate the bulk of a laser handpiece that might be getting close to an eyebrow, for instance. And so that's another nuance of when I decide to put a corneal shield or not, is that if I'm using a device that has a bulky handpiece, I, you know, if the lesion, yes, is overlying bone, but is still reasonably close to the eye, I, I can't get that that piece there if the uh, the blackout goggle is there, right? It might get in the way. Or if it's a very fine uh, handpiece, it's tiny, two millimeters, I can get in there very easily, then I can find that lesion, it overlies bone, and I, I don't have to move the eye protection away, right? Was it doctors that got into trouble, or did it matter their level of training? I think there were a lot of extenders involved. And so, uh, but in a lot of cases, it's a bit difficult to describe who the operator was. Okay. And so we just decided to... To be honest, the vast majority of uh, uh, injuries occurred to the patients, right? And so we had only, if I look very quickly, we had about 12% that were the uh, operator sustained uh, the injury. 
Um, but it was difficult to tease out precisely who the operators were. We can imagine that in the context of laser hair removal, there were a very few doctors uh, involved. We're in an era now where the laser is really, it's a wild, wild west because there doesn't appear to be any regulation or regulatory body that, that steps in and says, okay, I'm going to come and inspect your facility and look around. Is that is that true? I mean, are any of the provinces working towards that? I don't know that anyone is truly policing this, right? The um, It is, you know, there are some general guidelines that are out there. You know, you should have a laser safety officer. You should have, uh, make sure that you don't have reflective surfaces in the office. You should have a warning sign outside of a room that, ooh, laser in this room, right? Uh, and so... I am not aware that anyone is going around to Medispas to make sure that this is truly happening, right? Because we're physicians, we're under a higher degree of scrutiny. And so if we were getting a regular college audit or something like that, I'm sure that uh, it might be something that they look at at our practices. But you are right. It is a bit, though there are guidelines and recommendations and practice standards, I, my understanding is that there's very little policing. Yeah, no one to check your to see whether you're living up to your standard, or to Correct. to the standard. Yes, and especially since you know, let's say a, a laser might be purchased at an esthetician's office, then you know what body is going to go and regulate there? You know what right. I mean? Yes. And so it's it's not going to be the College of Physicians, that's for sure. Right. The Health Professions Act in Alberta would regulate other health professionals. So it might catch nurses and that sort of stu- sort of individual, but it won't catch the esthetician who buys the laser and brings it into their practice. Um, I just underwent a college review of my uh, sterilization procedures. And every three to five years, they, they come into the office and they tell us how to run this and how to run that. And we have to have checklists. I have to fill out a big book. I mean, it literally took hours of my time and my staff's time. And somebody actually came physically into the office and looked how, at how we did it. And we get a certificate at the end that says, you're good for another five years. I mean, that's for sterilization. And the potential for injury, I mean, it's, it's big, but it's not unlicensed and poorly trained laser people is something that maybe we should address. Yeah, it is difficult to credentialize ourselves as experts without doing necessarily negative bashing, you know what I mean? uh, So it's a difficult place uh, uh, to be in because I do believe that there are some really good people out there uh, doing really good work and complying and that, uh, you know, these concepts can really be learned and applied. And uh, but it, you are right that uh, uh, the degree of policing or of scrutiny is not necessarily there, unfortunately. And that leaves our patients or consumers needing to make a bit of an editorial decision um, when they're going to a facility without necessarily having all the right information to make that decision. Where do doctors go to get that kind of information apart from, you know, other colleagues or listening to our podcast and looking at articles that uh, that uh, you've put forward? Is there a, at the surgical meetings, are there places that are there sessions that just look at laser? Are there groups of people that get together and call themselves laser surgeons of Canada? Help me understand that. 
I think uh, a lot of the uh, laser uh, surgery um, issues live under the surgical dermatology realm. And so certainly ASDS in the U.S. is a, a big association where these considerations would be taken. And then there's also the American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery. Uh, that is its, uh, its own entity. If we uh, look to practice standards, uh, so something called ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, publishes guidelines on the use of lasers in humans. And so, uh, but, you know, it's not equipped with the policing force, I think, right? They are, they are the ideal and uh, uh, what uh, um, people strive for. Um, but whether um, that's being followed or what, you know, so because they will have those checklists, you know, you're setting up your office, you need this and that. And so that uh, is a very intelligent standard to follow. Okay, well, deviate from, that, uh, from them at your own peril. Yeah, correct. Right, and it, it's, it's like our dealings with our own colleges. I mean, fear drives good practice. <laughs> yes, it, it but... Uh, at the same time, you know, that fear might allow us to put these preventative measures so that we never get on the other side of that problem. Exactly. You know, and uh, um, so it definitely that a healthy fear has its place, I think. <laughs> Clearly. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much. The, the article was great. It really was a very nice how-to approach to doing this. So, so, you know, people who don't follow your advice do so at their own peril. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that it's a more uh, palatable and readable article than those standards that can be a little bit dry. Uh, but, and at the same time, I'm hoping that it will help my peers uh, make sure that uh, they're doing their best to not have to uh, wonder, okay, what am I going to do if I suspect there's been an eye injury from uh, a laser-based procedure at my office, right? I, I would love for people to, uh, you know, have the peace of mind and never have to deal with that. Well, let me, which reminds me one more thing. What do I do if I think I've injured someone's eye? Ideally, we, you would need a slit lamp exam like ASAP, right? And so uh, I think, uh, and this is probably not just a uh, sign off on a piece of paper and uh, uh, hope for an opto consult. I think this is sort of a pick up the phone and uh, uh, advocate for uh, our patients type of situation. Um, obviously, different wavelengths are going to have different mechanisms of injury, right? Uh, short wavelengths would, can cause uh, a bit of corneal damage. But then if we get to wavelengths that like hemoglobin or melanin, well, the iris, the retina, <laughs> they're both structures that are uh, rich in these chromophores. This is starting to get a little bit more serious, right? And so um, I think getting an, an eye exam pronto and uh, uh, an ophthalmologist's uh, advice on whether uh, we need topical antibiotics, topical steroid, eye patching, or even maybe a surgical intervention if it was needed. And so um, this is the time to, uh, you know, that... Uh, uh, ophthalmologist who owes you a favor uh, <laughs> to, to get them on speed dial. Yeah, good advice to have to have it worked out ahead of time, mm -hmm. right? So someone phones you up and says, "I have pain in my eye, the side that you treated." That should be an alarm bell, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, we we would think that most ocular symptoms would occur in the office, but there are some reports of things uh, occurring later on. And so, um, yes, this, uh, I think, should be taken quite seriously. Okay. Get the, get the ophthalmologist, as you say, on the, on the speed dial. Someone that, mm. someone that you're willing to return a favor to. Exactly. Right. 
Okay, well, listen, thank you again. It was great, as always. Cheers. Thanks for taking the time, and I really appreciate the invitation. Well, thanks, Vincent, and thank you to our listeners uh, for the time you spent with us. I hope you found it enjoyable. That's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews, and I, I hope you give us a rating, review us where you listen, and it helps people find these uh, interviews. And as you can see, this will make a difference to people's practice. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Uh, if you're looking for more great uh, CDA podcasts, be sure to check out Dermalogs, our resident podcast hosted by Dr. Kerry Purdy. I'm Kirk Barber, and thanks again for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.